there! You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon! Um, God, thank you that we're able to um, just be here today in this space together, um, even though we've been sick and it's been a long week for probably not just our family, but all of the families. Um, I just pray that we're able to leave here with something today, um, something that we didn't have when we walked in the door. Um, be at peace, be at grace, um, information, or just um, be with us as we move forward. So like Megan said, we are on our fourth week of our four-part series, Luke's Take on Women. Um, and we have kind of dove we dove headfirst into women in the book of Luke, um, particularly in the life of Jesus. And so just to kind of recap some history, the work of, um, the works that we attribute to Luke are the book of Luke and the book of Acts. They're written in a way that they're supposed to be read together. Luke is about the life of Jesus. Acts is about the church's response to the life of Jesus. Um, we don't actually know for sure that Luke is the person who wrote these books. Um, We're just kind of piecing information together of what we have and just making an assumption. So that's what we're going with. Um, There's a lot of speculation that it could have been several other people, but Luke is kind of what theologians have kind of pinned down as the likely author of these texts. So Luke's primary concern is with the Christian church's relationship with the Roman Empire. And they kind of got off to a rocky start um, with their leader being crucified. And so he is trying to make the two sympathetic toward each other. He is trying to establish the Christian religion as legitimate um, and standing with it itself, not as part of um, Judaism, but as own valid religion. And then kind of paints the Roman Empire as Um, working with them. Um, The church is not trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is not trying to take over the Christian religion and make it illegitimate. He's trying to paint a picture so that they're working together. Um, He's realizing that the Christian religion is going to have to exist within the Roman Empire. So they have to find a way to work together um, peacefully as they move forward. So he spends a lot of time painting... um, this picture as sympathetic toward one another. And his primary audience here is Gentiles or people who are not Jews. He writes as a Roman historian. That's his primary writing style, though he incorporates several different writing styles. His primary focus here is to just encapture history and tell the story of the life of Jesus. He was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He, um, uses a lot of different resources. He talks to a lot of people. He does a lot of investigative journalism to write this um, this book of Luke, which is really impressive if you look at the amount of detail that's included. He includes stories that we find nowhere else in scripture. And he has so much detail on characters that are only just kind of briefly mentioned or not mentioned at all in the other gospels. So he did a lot of his, a lot of homework in putting this together. So theologians kind of can't decide if Luke is inclusive of women or not. So he has stories that are about women that we don't find anywhere in scripture. He gives detail to women when women are not really discussed in other parts of scripture. But theologians aren't sure if that means that he's necessarily inclusive or not. Um, But we can note for sure that the gospel of Luke sets women in positions of power and leadership within the life of Jesus. Um, The first two 
chapters in particular paint women in a really strong light. Um, So the first week we talked about Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is Luke's way of saying that there's an ushering in of something new. Previous to this, um, to encounter the glory of God or the presence of God, you had to enter into the temple. So Luke saying being filled with the Holy Spirit is his way of saying we can now experience the presence of God anywhere and everywhere. So we have a really strong start. And then we move in to the story of Mary, um, who is the virgin mother of Jesus. And she writes one of the most beautiful songs of revolution ever, the Magnificat. And then in chapter two, we're introduced to um, a prophet, a widow who is a prophet, um, which is a title that's not normally given to women. So we're starting off with a really strong um, ground in these first two chapters. But then after the first two chapters, women are not given any speeches. Actually, the last speech given to a woman is the Magnificat with Mary. So we have this kind of women are strong, but they're in positions of mother or widow, and then they remain silent. So we're having this kind of where this argument comes back and forth of, is Luke pro-women or not? So like I said, we can, whatever you, wherever you fall theologically, um, I think it's not really, um, Jesus includes women in his ministry, in his life. Um, They're prominent from the very beginning and then all the way to the very end particularly in the book of Luke. Um, So Jesus has parables that he tells about women, which are made up stories. Um, And when he could have used any other character, he uses a woman. And Luke tells stories about women over and over again. Obviously, um, women at this time period, their expectation was kind of in the home. Um, They weren't allowed to learn to read, to study scripture. Yet we have Mary who and Elizabeth who are both educated in scripture and give us these really profound speeches that um, reference the Old Testament. And um, we see women that are educated in different ways throughout the book of Luke. And um, Jesus interacts with women in a way that he, he assumes that they're educated. He assumes that they know what they're talking about. And it's a really profound way to be women in a culture where women are not even really allowed to leave their homes unless they're accompanied by an escort to protect them. Um, and even even then, a lot of times when women leave their homes, it's as a means to get something for their house. Uh, it's not just to run errands. Not It's not like a social outing. They are there to get something, to do something, and then they go back home. They're not really to be seen or to be heard. Yet, here we have Jesus, this man who continually interacts with women on numerous occasions. He heals them. He dines with them. He raises their children from the dead, as we saw with the widow of Nain last weekend, um, as a means to restore her livelihood, not just to give her her son back. He has compassion on women over and over again. And then today we have our story um, that we're going to look at first, which is a widow, or I'm sorry, a story of a woman who washes Jesus's feet. So um, this is this story is found. Uh, Luke's version of the story. This story is actually in all of the Gospels, but Luke's version is found in chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Um, It's in your bulletin if you want to read along, or if you have a Bible, you're welcome to do that as well. Okay, so now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet 
with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your home. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? So we have um, this woman who, uh, she doesn't speak. She um, She's not given any She's, none of her words are written down. Anyways, um, she just comes in as someone who has not been invited to the party and begins doing this thing where she's washing Jesus' feet. And in our, our culture, this is kind of an interesting thing. This isn't something that we would see happen. Um, but in this culture uh, where Jesus is, a common act when you're invited into someone's home is for the host to get down and wash your feet. People are outside. They're walking in sand and sandals or no shoes at all. Their feet are really dirty. Likely they hurt. They're blistered. Um, so it's just kind of a really gracious, welcoming act to wash someone's feet when they come into your house. And it's normally the host that does this. Yet we see this man, Simon, didn't do that for Jesus. And we're faced with this woman who, as far as we know, isn't at the party, hasn't, doesn't live at the home, and she is washing Jesus's feet. Simon knows who she is, and she apparently has a very r bad reputation, um, and he assumes that Jesus, being a prophet that he claims he is, should know this, and thinks, why is he letting this woman touch him if he knows who she is? She, he obviously must not be the prophet that he says he is, and yet Jesus, proving that he is a prophet, knows Simon's personal thoughts and addresses him. And he tells this parable of forgiveness. And I think, um, so a lot of the other gospels focus kind of on this juxtaposition between the differences between Jesus and Simon, that they're both theologians, they're both educated in scripture, and they have very different opinions on how to approach this woman, this sinner. Simon is adamant that we don't interact with her, she's unclean, we shouldn't allow him, her to touch any of us, we need to send her out. Yet Jesus sees her and welcomes her and her, interacts with her, allows her to touch him in one of a pretty intimate fashion. But I think Luke's primary focus here is more on the juxtaposition of the woman and Simon. So Simon is the host of the party. Traditionally, he's the one to perform this ritual. Yet this woman who is uninvited is the one to do so. And then Jesus tells this story to kind of reemphasize to Simon the difference between their actions, the difference between the way that the host and this woman, the sinner, have responded. He's saying, 
she has been forgiven much. She has loved much. She's extended hospitality to me in your home when she isn't even welcome here. And I think that that in itself is really profound. And then we move right into chapter eight, um, verses one through three where Jesus is talking about women again. And this is a passage that we only find in Luke. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming in the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cuzza, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And it's, I think it's interesting that this passage about the women that walked with Jesus follows the story of the woman who washes Jesus's feet. Um, kind of, it, it makes me wonder if maybe the type of women that walked with Jesus were like this woman, the sinner who no one wanted to interact with, um, that, but yet she loves Jesus clearly. She's doing this beautiful wonderful thing for him. She's welcoming him. She's showing him hospitality. And he in turn shows her grace and peace. And we don't know for sure. Um, obviously, the scripture is pretty vague on who these women were. There's only three three women that are named. Um, but it makes me wonder if this story precedes this passage, because these are the type of women that Luke was going to talk about following. And so this, these very short three verses are some of the most profound profound words in scripture to me, um, particularly, especially in the book of Luke. Um, there are, these women are walking with Jesus. They are doing the work. They're being the hands and the feet of Jesus. And they're part of his circle, his inner circle. And kind of as in a means to drive home the um, point here, I guess, and the significance of these women, all of Luke's themes found throughout the book of Luke and Acts are at play in these short verses. So there's universalization of the gospel, meaning that it's meant for everyone. There's the qualities of true discipleship and then the good news to the poor and the marginalized, the marginalized being the women. This is a really big deal. These women have left their home. Remember, women don't leave their home in this time period. Um, it's unheard of in the society. And they're traveling with a group of men. And Jesus gives them his approval Again, Jesus is showing us from, that from the very beginning, he intended to include women in the work he's doing of bringing heaven to the earth here and now. So as I said, not all these women are named. We're only given three names, um, but there's kind of, it's a reference, it's a pretty large group of women. The three names that were given are Mary of Magdala, who is delivered from seven demons, Joanna, who is the wife of the steward of Herod. Um, so this woman is of high esteem. She has a lot of money. She's probably pretty well known in the area. And um, she is likely the one to provide a lot of money for the ministry of Jesus. Um, even in this time period, you needed money to travel um, from city to city. You need places to stay, food to eat, even with the generosity of others. They likely still needed some funds of some kind. Um, so it's kind of speculated that this woman, Joanna, was likely the one to fund most of those things. Um, and then we have the next woman who we don't know anything about. Um, her name is Susanna. So these three women are, they're breaking down social barriers. Um, they're from different classes. Susanna is a Hebrew name. So they're working 
without cultural or socioeconomic distinctions dividing them, which is something that we really don't even see to this day. Um, they're working in a time period together um, for a common goal, for the ministry of Jesus. And this text is usually used to say that women serve Jesus by making him food or washing his clothes or doing common like women work. Um, and I think the issue kind of comes in with the translation of a word, a phrase in verse three. So in our translation, this word says uh, provided for in English and the Greek, and I don't speak Greek, so I'm going to probably mispronounce this. Just bear with me. Um, the Greek is written as diakonon, which has its roots in diakonio, meaning to serve. Um, so it's kind of where people get that idea of he's, they're serving Jesus by serving tables, by making him food, things like that. But it's also similar to the word diakonos, which we translate in English as the word deacon. And deacons, while yes, they serve tables, they do a lot more than that. Um, there's a liturgical aspect of the job of deacon. Deacons are an integral part of the ministry that they serve. Our, uh, sorry, author R.J. Karras noted in his work that 75% of the uses of the word diakonos diakonon in the book of Luke are used in reference to serving as a messenger or a go-between. Essentially, he's um, saying that this word is often used to say that these people are giving the message of Jesus. They're sharing the message that Jesus is sharing. And he argues that this is the correct interpretation for the word here in verse 3. Um, so that these women, he's saying, are going on mission, sharing the message of Jesus, not just serving tables, but they're deacons in the ministry. They're working alongside Jesus. They're traveling with Jesus. Luke, Luke is painting these women as pretty powerful, just as he painted Elizabeth as powerful, and Mary, or Anna, or any of the other women that we've talked about so far. Countless times throughout the book of Luke, he includes stories of women doing powerful things. Um, women are being included in the ministry of Jesus, not to just sit back, excuse me, um, but to be involved, to have a voice, to participate and be a part of the hands and feet of Jesus. And verse two says that um, many of these women were stricken with different infirmities or they were um, filled with demons, different things like that. And there's, so there's clear evidence that each of these women um, even the ones who aren't named have a lot to be thankful for, uh, much like the woman who washed Jesus's feet when he says she has a lot to be thankful for. She loves much because she's been forgiven much, kind of a callback, a reference to that. These women have been forgiven a lot. They have much to be thankful for. And he welcomes them when they wouldn't have been welcome anywhere else um, in society because they're unclean, because they're difficult, because they have too many problems, or simply just because they're women. They wouldn't have been welcome anywhere else. Yet Jesus welcomes them time and time again. And he includes them in what he's doing. The inclusion of women in Jesus's ministry as disciples doesn't end with these three verses. It, um, as kind of looking through this lens, you can see information sprinkled um, throughout the arrest and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that these women were there, that they were a part of the story. And they have been traveling with Jesus. So let's look at the Last Supper, which we find in um, chapter 22, verses 7 through 36. Uh, it's a really long passage, so I'm not going to read it. But it's often been taught that the 12 male disciples were the only ones present at the Last Supper. Um, but Luke says that this feast happens at Passover. So Luke does this thing where he repeats himself a lot when something's important. Uh, that's something that we see a lot in scripture, and Luke is just using a tactic that other 
writers use at this time period. So he says three times that this is happening at Passover. Um, we're getting an essence that it's important that we know that. So he says it in chapter verse one, again in verse two, and then once again in verse 13. He wants us to know for sure that this is happening at Passover. And that's important because Passover is a really large family affair. Each member of the family would have had um, a task or a job at a Passover meal. So it wouldn't have just been the men included. There would have been women. There would have been children involved. It doesn't really make sense to have this big, large celebration and then limit it to 12 people. It would have been everyone in Jesus' circle. Everyone in Jesus' family would have been there. His circle was his family. So we get another indication that this might be the case. Um, the, the women were at the guests, were guests at the Last Supper, um, kind of throughout when he says in verse 26, the greatest among you shall, um, should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. So again, he's indicating that there's a large age range of people. There's a large kind of social status of people. There's rich, there's poor, there's young, there's old, there's those who serve and those who are served, right? So indicating that it's not just the 12 disciples. Then at the crucifixion, we see a group of women who are following Jesus as he's being led to his death, um, and they're lamenting. Jesus addresses them as daughters of Jerusalem. So in chapter 23, verses 27 through 31, we see this kind of interaction. So it says... A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. So they're lamenting. They're crying out for Jesus. And Jesus refers to them as daughters of Jerusalem. And then as we go forward, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never turned or never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So Jesus is recognizing the pain in these women. He's, he's listening to them um, when no one else is, um, when he's suffering as well, and yet he still calls out in grace and peace and compassion on these women. And Luke is the only one to include um, that these women, the, their lament um, at the death. And they're lamenting, yes, the death, the un, I mean, unreasonable crucifixion of this man um, who was peaceful and he's being very brutally killed. Um, but more than anything, I think they're lamenting the loss of the person who recognizes them, who sees them, who listens to them, who has compassion on them when no one else does. They're, they're losing the person that cared most about them in a society when people don't really care about them at all. And so then after the crucifixion, Luke, um, we also see this in Matthew, refers to this same group of women as the women who followed from Galilee. So in verses 49 and again in 56 or 55 through 56, we see Luke calling these women as the women who followed from Galilee. Uh, so for reference, Galilee is approximately 100 miles from Jerusalem where the crucifixion is um, happening. So it's indicating that these women have been traveling with Jesus for some time as they didn't have cars. So they had to walk all these miles. It would have taken several days. So they've been with Jesus for a while, participating with him, um, which means that they were likely with him again at the Last Supper when he was arrested or right before his arrest. And so then we see again in verses or chapter 40, 24, verses 9 through 10, that these women appear so 
we're going to read this um, little section. It says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all the things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told them or told this to the apostles. So we have another named woman, which we don't really know a whole lot about other than she was the mother of James. Um, and then we have the two women that we were mentioned before, Mary Magdalene and Joanna. And um, they go and they tell this information. They've, they've been to the tomb. They see that Jesus has been resurrected. And these women go and tell all of the others. Not just the 11. It says the 11 and all of the others, indicating that there was a large group of people, um, not just the 11 disciples. And I say 11 because we remember Judas um, betrayed Jesus, so he's no longer considered in part of the 12. So it would be the 11 now, um, just kind of as an aside. And I think we see this kind of at play, this like counting system where men are the only ones counted. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. So the gospels all record that there were 5,000. Matthew is the only one to say that it was 5,000 men. And then there were also women and children present. The book of Luke counts it as 5,000 men. So I'm kind of wondering if the same system, counting system is at play here. So there were 11 men and then everybody else was women and children. So we don't really count them because they don't matter. Uh, so either way, there were a lot of people there. It wasn't just the 11 men. So the first section of chapter 24 places these women right at center stage. Um, it seems as if Luke is really trying to establish that these women from Galilee are reliable witnesses to the resurrection. Um, I want to pause on the idea that these women here are the ones to visit the tomb. They're, um, this is not a safe situation for them. Their leader has just been killed. Um, and likely, the people who killed him are wanting to go after everyone who's been involved with him. And they're already in a dangerous situation because they're women outside of what's like socially expected of them in the first place. And now they're involved with this leader who's been killed. So the men are staying back at home and the women go and they want to care for Jesus the way that he cared for them, even in his death. They love him and they want to care for him. And they go and they are wanting to do burial rituals for him. Um, so it's really pretty significant that these women are putting themselves in danger to go and care for Jesus when Jesus put himself in danger by caring for them, right? So it's revolutionary that this is even included, yet they go and they love and they share. And then I don't want you to miss this. These women are the first to share what we now call the gospel. They see that Jesus has been resurrected and they go and they tell the men, all of the Gospels record the women as the ones to be the witness of Jesus' resurrection. And then they go and they share this good news, this good news that we celebrate every year at Easter, this good news that we still talk about today. The women were the very first people to share that information. This is huge. This is Jesus flipping tables. This is Jesus changing the social expectation, the social norm that women sit back and are silent. And he's giving them the first to be the one to share the gospel, to be the ones to share the good news, to preach the message of Jesus, of compassion, of grace and peace. The greatest evidence of these women's significance as disciples is that they're entrusted as the primary witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Um, theologian Richard Bachman says it this way, the women's priority is really a kind of positive discrimination that by reversing the normally expected priority of one gender over the other 
has the effect of ruling gender privilege out of the new order the resurrection appearances constitute. So again, we're facing this idea of flipping tables of the social norm as a new way of being ushered in with Jesus, with his death and resurrection. We're starting something new. We're not just flipping power dynamics. We're completely eliminating them. We're making a new, a, a completely new field where everyone is welcome. The book of Luke begins and ends with women in a very powerful, prominent roles. They're not sitting quietly on the sidelines, but they're flipping tables. They're being the hands and feet of Jesus. So may we go into our lives into this week and do the same. Include the forgotten, listen to the stories of the marginalized, and always, always welcome with grace and peace, knowing that their stories may be what changes the world. Maybe we need to flip some tables. God, thank you. Um, they have compassion on the marginalized. Um, and at this time period, women were the marginalized. Today, um, our definition of marginalized has expanded to um, large groups of people. And I think the message is still the same. You have compassion and grace and peace for the marginalized and you welcome them to the table. And I pray that as individuals and as a church, we can listen to their stories and include them the way that you did. We can have compassion for them um, and know that they're important to the story and we can't move forward until we invite everyone to the table. Uh, in your name, amen. Grace and peace be with you. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.